0: Chapter 2. Entitlement is your worst enemy. A freeing truth. If you took a survey to find out what the worst enemy attacking men's marriages was, what do you think some of the top answers would be? Maybe pornography, the way women dress, lack of compatibility, and don't forget the old classic communication. The truth is it's none of the above. It is entitlement. You are likely reading this because you want to improve your marriage. There are lots of books and seminars out there on how to improve your marriage, some of them quite good. But if even one of them worked completely, we wouldn't need to write or conduct any more. The entire industry would go out of business. What would happen if instead of going on a journey to improve your marriage, you went on a journey to renovate your heart? My wife and I were both virgins when we got married. My church upbringing in the sexual purity books I read in college told me that if I saved myself sexually until marriage, God would bless my marriage and specifically my sex life. Another way of, quote, bless is, quote, give you everything you desire. I struck a deal with God. I do my part. He does his. This is entitlement. It's the feeling that I deserve something, that I've earned something, the irony of this is that the foundational step to receiving the gospel of Jesus is to admit, I deserve nothing. I don't deserve to be saved from hell. I don't deserve to be forgiven by Jesus. I don't deserve grace. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve life itself. In Exodus thirty-three twenty, God tells Moses, no one can see God and live. Romans 3.23 tells us we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wage we deserve because of our sin is eternal death. These biblical declarations on what we deserve are a far cry from the irreverent, quote, buddy Jesus mentality many modern day Christians have adopted. Instead of living like humbled sinners before a holy God, we live as if we deserve every bit of comfort we desire, especially when it comes to our marriages. When we believe Jesus isn't all that holy and we aren't all that sinful, we think Jesus ought to hook us up. Not only should he slip us a free burger, like our high school buddy working at the McDonald's drive through but he must give us what we want because he contractually owes it to us. Realizing how far we really are from God's holy standard will cause a drastic change in our posture towards Him and towards our wives. Knowing I don't deserve anything from God is a far cry from feeling like I deserve or am entitled to an easy and happy marriage because I was, quote, good enough to earn it. It's a far cry from setting up mandated expectations for my wife based on my own perceived merited behavior. Unmet expectations. At the root of almost all marriage problems are unmet expectations. I want my wife to do something or be a certain way. She isn't doing it, so I get mad and start looking elsewhere. Expectations and entitlement are two different entities, though they typically work in tandem to wreak havoc on our marriages. An expectation says we believe that something will happen. In and of itself, expectations aren't bad. They come naturally in a marriage as they are based on the very promises we make and our vows. We get ourselves in hot water when our expectations are unrealistic, which we likely aren't going to realize is the case, and when they go unmet and we respond with entitlement. Entitlement says we have a right to something. We've earned it and deserved it, and we will make sure we get it one way or another. When expectations, even realistic ones, go unmet, we have two options. One is to try to figure out what we can do to manipulate our wives into meeting these expectations. The other is to accept the truth that we have no theological right to expect anything from anybody, which includes our wives. Footnotes. As we have just mentioned, expectations are natural in a marriage, and are neutral in and of themselves. It's not wrong to believe your wife will be a good spouse, will do kind things for you, will want to have sex with you, etc. What's wrong is when we believe we deserve these things on a theological level. It completely changes our heart's posture toward life and God. End of footnote. As well as God himself. Footnote. This isn't to say we don't have value in God's eyes or that God didn't create us with innate dignity and worth. It's saying that we need to fully own up to the guilt of our sin and realize that because we are guilty, we have committed crimes against God. We deserve punishment. We have no, quote, right to anything else. This is the only posture that allows us to fully receive and be fully transformed by God's mercy. End of footnote. Anything that is given to us is an undeserved mercy from God. The first option leads to a lifetime of disappointment, disillusionment, and frustration. The second leads to freedom, peace, and gratitude. The aim of this book is to dismantle the entitlement we've been taught to have in our marriages and replace it with the sound foundation of who we are in Christ. We don't need to add anything to what he has already given us. Entitlement for singles. Quote, God, I've done it your way. Now you owe me. Unquote. It's likely that entitlement is not foreign to you and your conversations with God, whether you are single or married. For singles, it's often the refrain given to God when you are tired of singleness. There's a girl you're pursuing, or there's one who just left you, or you attended another wedding, or you're the third wheel again, and at the end of the day, you're just tired of being single. You've done it God's way. Other people got their prize. Now you want yours. Entitlement does not discriminate. It plagues both the married and the single. If you are single and get married someday, learning to rid yourself of entitlement now will put you way ahead of the game for later. And if you are to stay single, ridding yourself of this entitlement and the aching disappointment in God that accompanies it will free you like only the mercy of Christ can. Thousands of mercies. Quote, What does it matter if I suffer injustice? Would I not have deserved even worse punishment from God? if he had not dealt with me according to his mercy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer Entitlement sneaks up on you like a carbon monoxide leak. You didn't intentionally cause it. You can't smell it or see it, but it's there, and it's lethal. It really serves as a slave master, working you so hard you eventually break. Nothing can quench it. Nothing can satisfy it the only way to be free from its enslavement is to receive the sobering truth of what you deserve and what you have received from Jesus instead. This realization will give you freedom from what burdens you in a way nothing else can. Now, get ready for some strong coffee. This isn't fun and happy news, but it is the death blow to entitlement. And that death blow opens the path of peace, lightness, And freedom. The truth is, we are sinners who deserve hell this very moment. We've earned it. We don't deserve the soft couch we are sitting on, or the shoes on our feet, or the coffee in our hand, the food in our fridge, our children, our wives. We don't deserve anything this moment except to be under a holy God's wrathful judgment. This is what the word deserve means. Take a moment to let that sink in. To deny this truth and to believe anything else is to deny the fact that we are rebellious sinners who have separated ourselves from God with no way to repair this broken relationship using our own strength. But when we let this truth sink in, we realize that everything we have, everything we have, is a direct gift of mercy from God. If in this moment I deserve eternal punishment, but I get a cup of coffee instead, that coffee is the most incredible gift ever imagined. If in this moment I deserve eternal punishment, but I get to be married to a woman, a life companion instead, then that woman is an incredible gift. If in this moment I deserve eternal punishment, but instead I'm single and get to explore the depths of my relationship with God in a way that many married people can't, this becomes an incredible gift. When I think of life from this perspective, I realize there are literally thousands upon thousands of mercies God has already shown me today. Mercy upon mercy that I do not deserve. Picture it like someone knocking on your door with an oversized check for a million bucks. The feeling you get from this is a lot different than when your boss hands you your paycheck every other Friday, isn't it? Picture how you'd feel if that payday came and your boss told you there would be no paycheck. How would you respond? You'd be irate. You'd file a lawsuit. This sounds sadly familiar to how we approach God in our entitlement doesn't it? So why does the million dollar check at your doorstep feel so different than the paycheck you collect on Friday? It's not the dollar amount. It's that one understands the check is undeserved, while the other knows it's deserved. Only one of the two will walk away overwhelmed with gratitude and joy. So what is our response to this type of mercy given to us in Jesus? Entitlement goes out the window and gratitude and appreciation reign. Instead of taking the couch I'm sitting on for granted or wishing I had a newer, nicer one or wishing I was married or single, I wiggle back and forth and think, wow, a couch. I deserve hell. And I get a couch instead. The amount of joy that can come from this perspective over the course of a day is more than the people around you are going to be able to handle we are comfortable applying the appreciation of mercy to our salvation we understand that we are rebellious sinners desperately in need of a merciful savior so why do we forget about it when it comes to the rest of our lives and especially in our marriages or singleness and how will embracing this truth completely transform us as husbands and as men. Kickback love. Most people would define love as sacrificing yourself for another, putting someone else above yourself. The Bible tells us repeatedly to do this. In fact, the Bible tells us the very definition of love is that it is not self-seeking. Footnote, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. End of footnote. We wax eloquently about this in our marriage vows, yet are taught the opposite when we look for help on having a happy and fulfilling marriage. We give lip service to the foundation of marriage being based on loving selflessness and sacrifice. But in practice, our motivation is often based on how we can coerce our spouse to do what we want. The underlying premise of many marriage books, seminars, and counseling sessions is based on the idea of reciprocation. Your marriage doesn't feel good, and you want it to be better. The way to make your marriage feel better is to get your wife to do what you want. The way to get your wife to do what you want is to learn how to do what she wants. So the book or counselor helps you solve this riddle. The theory goes that everyone has a love tank, love bank, or whatever synonym the most recent marriage counseling fad is currently using. But the principle is the same. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Let's say you want your wife to show you affection. Your, quote, love bank is empty, and that makes you feel bad. Because your bank is empty, you want to cheat. You want to lust. You want a divorce. You want that bank full, and you'll do what is necessary to make that happen. If your wife were a better wife and was doing her job, you wouldn't be feeling this way. You don't want to feel this way, but it's her fault, not yours. But wait, there's a solution. Her account is empty too. All this time, you thought you were being a great husband, but you were actually swinging and missing. Your wife isn't showing you the affection you want because you haven't cleaned the garage. You've drained her love account. Clean the garage and boom, affection city. You figure out the puzzle of what your wife wants and you give it to her so that she will give you what you want. Your back has been scratched and now you are happy. This is self-seeking. Another word for this is selfishness. This type of marriage counseling may be a more indirect route of selfishness. Footnote, I know it is not the author's intent to set us up for selfishness but it's definitely a major side effect to this approach that almost all readers are prone to. End of footnote. But the root is selfish nonetheless. Marriage is set up as if its purpose were to get your desires met. That's selfishness. What do you think will happen in a marriage that is rooted in selfish motives? Ironically, many popular Christian marriage books use this type of quote, how to coerce your spouse to do what you want, unquote, strategy. They sell in droves, because this method typically yields instantaneous, albeit temporary, results. We get super excited about the idea that our wives are finally gonna give us what we've always wanted. But in the long run, this only sets us up for further disappointment. Experienced marriage counselors can pinpoint the missing factors that push their clients to have affairs. As they listen to couples over the years, they compile the common themes and write books explaining what these factors are. You read the books and do the worksheets together with your wife to make sure that each of you fully understands how the other wants to be shown love. If you do these things, not only will your wife be less likely to have an affair, she will be happy with you and will reciprocate affection in return, making you less likely to be unfaithful as well. We love this because in the end, we all get what we want. These types of strategies have produced some fruit in people's marriages, and those who came up with these strategies desire to help. Maybe one of these books was very helpful to you, and you're struggling with what I'm writing here. Still, I'm challenging you to look beneath the surface at the motives and appetites these strategies arouse, despite their good intentions or their momentary results. Like a dietary supplement that ends up causing cancer, If it does more harm than good, the quote cure is not worth it. If a strategy creates or is fueled by entitlement, it's only going to set us up for failure. It's the wrong foundation and foundations matter. Entitlement is a predator. We cannot escape if we continue to feed it and negotiate compromises with it. We must see the flaw in these approaches and fill in the gaps they leave. For some, These approaches can provide helpful tools for certain seasons of marriage if adopted with very intentional caution. But most of us should avoid these strategies altogether. While it's helpful to know how your spouse is uniquely wired and to know what factors cause unfaithfulness so you can guard against them, there are destructive and inevitable repercussions that flow from the expectation of reciprocity. I say inevitable... Because your wife is going to continue to let you down. She is human and sinful, as you are, and will never be able to fully satisfy you. Can you continue to strive to, quote, speak your wife's love language without feeling resentful if she doesn't speak yours? That is a path most of us simply can't handle. What makes things worse is that this approach categorizes these factors as needs. Footnote. Harley Willard, His Needs, Her Needs, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Revelle, 2011. End footnote. Needs are things like oxygen, food, water, and shelter. I am entitled to have my needs met. And when I approach my marriage with entitlement on my mind, it is bound to blow up in my face. You do not need your wife to show you affection. You don't. You aren't going to die without her affection. It is a wrong use of the word. The essential flaw of the reciprocation strategy is that it caters directly to our sinful, selfish nature instead of working against it. It starts with the premise, quote, I deserve to have my spouse love me in the way I desire, unquote. So every act of, quote, love, I show her is not actually an act of love, but an act of selfishness. Like depositing quarters into an arcade game or a vending machine, my love investments towards her are merely transactional means to an end, my own satisfaction. When we are counseled to show love to our wife with the hope that she will reciprocate, our sin nature immediately builds a scoreboard, and this scoreboard eventually spawns self-righteousness. I've done my part, why isn't my wife doing hers? I'm filling her up, but I still feel empty. Why are my needs still unmet? This self righteousness simply promotes the mindset that I am the good spouse, and my wife is the one slacking, making everything worse. Frustration reigns, and I feel I've earned the right to look elsewhere to fill up my quote, love bank because I've been told I deserve and need this. Heck, my wife has pushed me to look elsewhere. She read the same book I did, for crying out loud, and she's still not giving me what I deserve. It's her fault I have a wandering heart. This simply echoes what's been true of the human condition since the day Adam and Eve first sinned. We feel we deserve to have our desires met and that the quality of our lives revolve around this. And just as Adam did, we blame the woman rather than take responsibility when things go haywire. We believe we deserve to feel good at any cost, and this becomes the primary motivation for everything we do. Judging our marriages on the false measure of the reciprocation slash self-righteousness scoreboard will leave us empty, frustrated, and wanting. It starts up a treadmill we can never climb off. By contrast, the gospel Jesus offers us turns this strategy completely upside down and reveals where we will ultimately find lasting freedom and joy.